It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. And of course, anywhere across the country, if you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in 106.5 ELMNT-FM or 95.7 ELMNT-FM and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It is a pleasure to welcome to the show Mara Jutkis, and she is a feature reporter for the Washington Post covering culture, food, and the arts. She is a 2018 and 2020 James Beard Award winner and a 2019 Society for Features Journalism Award winner, and her work has been honored by the Association of Food Journalists and the Virginia Press Association. So, Mara, uh, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. And of course, you're here to join us because of an article you wrote for the Washington Post about our sense of time and in this COVID situation. And, and we were happy to see that because we were talking about it here at the station one day in one of our, uh, our conversations, uh, brainstorming. And I said, you know, in, in fact, one of the people in the, in the meeting, uh, they were asked, you know, what's on their mind. And they said, you know, I don't know. I, I can't really think clearly for some reason and stuff. And I said, you know what? I've, I've been wondering about that because it seems like that's happening to a lot of people. Uh, just that our sense of time has been affected, but also we're, we're, we're in this sort of joint brain fog situation. Does that make sense to you? I think that's a really common experience. Um, I became really fascinated with time early on this year because the pandemic was something that nearly everyone in the world was experiencing at the same time. But depending on your circumstances in life in relation to the pandemic, it meant that you were experiencing time differently. So if you were, say, a doctor in a crowded ER, um, your perception of time is completely different than maybe a middle class parent who's working from home and trying to homeschool your kids. And the length of your months feels different. And so the joke has kind of been that every day is blurs day now. <laughs> That's right. And in fact, you spoke with some people for your article that helped validate for that for you, correct? Yeah, you know, it's it's been interesting because um, there are neuroscientists that I spoke with for this story have been really interested in studying this period of time um, because they have observed the way that people have been perceiving time and how it's been different for people depending on, you know, what they have been doing during the pandemic and how they've been coping. And so, you know, time tends to feel slower. Our perception of time slows down when we are doing mundane things or when when all of our days tend to feel the same. And so that is why people who are quarantined and who are sitting this out, you know, as as the recommendations say they should, um, that's why that's why this feels like an eternity to mm. people. Uh, if every day is the same for them, they're not making these new temporal landmarks and it just makes it feel interminable. Right. Now that's that's interesting uh, the way that time is being perceived. I guess if you're if you're someone like a doctor on the front line and dealing with cases every day, going into work and you're nonstop from start to stop uh, from your shift and beyond, um, time is going very quickly, as you as you may have mentioned. Yeah, I mean, part of the issue is that you know people have kind of 
just felt unmoored. They have sort of lost their sense of where they are mm. in time. Mm. And I mean, part of that, I think the problem is that we don't actually know um, where we are in relation to the beginning or the end of this pandemic. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we don't know if we're closer to the beginning of it or the end. Um, and I mean, that's that's different depending on where you live too. So people are, you know, depending on where you are, you may be further along in time, in your perception of time than someone else who lives um, maybe a country or a few states away. That's really, that's, that's really out there. (laughs) (laughs) That, yeah, that's really interesting. Depending on where you are, your time and perception of this, of being in this COVID uh, could shift just from that very experience. That's what you're Mm -hmm. saying. Mm -hmm. Wow. So what else did you find from, from exploring this idea of the sense of, of time and our, our sense of time being broken? Well, so one thing that I was really interested in um, was identifying people for whom the pandemic had had physically even altered their, like how many days they have experienced this year. So, you know, I, I found a woman who had COVID and thankfully recovered, um, but she was in a coma for nine days when she was on the ventilator mm. um, and it happened very quickly. And so, you know, she went under in March, towards the end of March, uh, and woke up nine days later in April, having no idea what had just happened to her. Mm. Um, and so the, the, you know, she had been in the hospital a few days before she had gone on the ventilator and every day um, the nurses would ask her, what day is it? Um, just, you know, to, to check her mental state. Mm. Um, and she would answer accurately. And then she woke up from the coma and they asked her what day it was. And she got the answer wrong, of course, because she thought it was still March and was shocked to learn that it was April and that she had been under for so long. And so, you know, she, she lost nine days of her life because of this virus. Um, and then my favorite example actually is, uh, you know, I don't know if you remember back in March, there were lots of cruise ships that were kind of stuck in the ocean. Um, Mm -hmm. people weren't accepting them at ports. Uh, and so one of those cruise ships, um, it crossed the international dateline twice, uh, which means that they had two March 12th and two <laughs> March 15th, all of the people on that ship, which I think is pretty wild. <laughs> the, the virus gave them extra days this year. Yeah. And, and talk about messing you up. If it wasn't messed up enough that you couldn't dock uh, and you were out at sea in this, on this uh, cruise liner and then have the days even, even messed up for you even more. Now, since you wrote this article, what kind of further develop, developments have you seen or heard or, or examples of, of how this is continuing? Um, well, I think, I think a good example, um, unfortunately, is the way in politics um, that, that our politicians have been referring to what wave we are in. You know, mm. no one seems to agree what wave various parts of the country and the Mm. world are in. Um, And I think that's an example of our distortion of time too. You know, I think, for example, President Trump, um, you know, up through, I think September was saying that, you know, that we were, that the virus was over basically. Um, And then we have other politicians who are saying, no, we're, we're still in the first wave of this. Um, And so, I mean, I think that has been very difficult for people to grasp. And again, goes back to the idea of where, where are we in time in relation to this virus? No one seems to know, um, especially as we get into the darker winter months when mm. everyone expects that things will be worse. Yeah, true enough. Now, 
you know, off the top, we talked about time, and I, I mentioned this brain fog kind of thing that people, that I've noticed people around, even my own work, have been experiencing. And, and there's this generalized confusion. As you say, it's, it's partly because of every day being the same. Um, have you noticed that yourself in your, in your own place of work? <laughs> Occasionally, you know, I, I feel um, sometimes a sense of burnout. Mm. <laughs> like I, I live in a very small apartment in Washington, D.C. Mm. Um, and so I don't have a separate room for my office. Mm. Um, I wake up and I go to work at a desk, which is next to my bed. <laughs> and so like, you know, like many people yeah. who are working from home right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of just contributes to this sense of like every time is the same time like you know my bed is next to my desk there's no real division between mm-hmm. work and sleep um and you know i think a lot of people for that reason have been having problems with sleep mm-hmm. which which also is going to affect your perception of time and is also going to give you that brain fog i mean it all kind of relates back to you know each problem each problem compounds um with the way that we are living right now right you're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates as well as E-L-M-N-T-F-M and then listen on your device of choice. And it is a pleasure to have here on the show with me, um, Maura Jitkis, and she is a uh, Washington Post uh, re- reporter and uh, features reporter. And we're talking about her, her article that she wrote on, it's been six months and our sense of time is broken. Um, now, the other thing, though, that you you found out in this article from talking to people is is once we get out of this, our sense of time isn't necessarily just going to go back to normal. Yeah, it's true. You know, and I mean, I think I think some people, depending on you know where you live in the country and and what phase of lockdown you are on, um, you know there is kind of a return to normalcy, uh, but nothing is actually really normal. Um, <laughs> things might feel normal. You might be going back to your office, but, but you know, having all of these different reminders of this time around you, you know, people wearing masks, maybe colleagues in other time zones who are experiencing things differently, um, and, and the kind of whiplash of going back and forth, too, of, of maybe having, you know, the threat of a further lockdown, uh, depending on how the numbers in your area are going, you know, we can't really get back to normal. Um, and there is really, I mean, everyone says there is no normal anymore and, and there will be a new normal, which is such a cliched phrase, of course, but it's true that, you know, things aren't really going to be the same. Um, and that is again, just going to warp our perception of time and what we are going through and contribute to this general sense of unease that everyone across the country seems to be feeling to some degree right now. Mm. And, and, and how does that tie in with, uh, as you say in the article, humanity loves a countdown. So, <laughs> you know, and, and so yes. the calendars are, are no longer really uh, helping us with that because of the situation we find ourselves in. 
Right. Yeah. You know, I mean, when, when, when this first started back in March, um, you know, President Trump was saying the country is going to reopen by Easter, which mm. was, of course, a pretty ridiculous, um, prediction at the time. And then, you know, there was this sense of like, well, maybe things will be back to normal, um, by Memorial Day, by the end of May. Mm. Uh, and that didn't happen. And then, then, you know, we keep moving these goalposts. Uh, mm. it became the 4th of July. It became Labor Day. Um, I think now people are kind of looking towards the end of the year, but of course mm. that's right in the middle of the season when we tend to be the sickest. It's flu season. Um, (laughs) It seems pretty unlikely uh, that there's going to be a significant difference by then. Um, You know, our office, it seems, isn't going to be back in person at least until next summer. And so, Mm. you know, all of this kind of comes back to the vaccine, really. Um, And the vaccine is a completely different race against the clock for the people who are developing that vaccine. uh, It's, it's going to be the fastest vaccine that's ever been developed. Um, But it's, it's still too slow for most people. And it's hard for them to kind of get a sense of how long it takes to develop a vaccine and how the trials have been going. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of the trials have recently been paused, of course, for health reasons, um, which is a necessary safeguard, but it's, it's, upsetting to people to hear that that's a delay that they'll have to encounter. Yeah. And again, uh, you know, our sense of time is affected by, is somewhat by the films we watch, I guess. You know, when we, when we see films about uh, disasters or pandemics or anything like that, uh, there's usually that, that uh, eureka moment when they, they come up with the cure or, or the, you know, the result that's going to end the, the dilemma. And then very, very quickly, there's it's being distributed and people are getting the vaccine or whatever, and it's all over. It gives us another sense and wondering how that has affects our sense of what we expect from a vaccine, you know, quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And definitely there's this Hollywood perception of like a genius scientist and an <laughs> aha moment and mm-hmm. like suddenly we have the cure and like rush it into production. And then like a week later, you know, everything is fine and everyone's going to be fine. But that's certainly not the case. I mean, there are a lot of vaccines that are being developed too. And, mm-hmm. you know, they're each a little bit different. Um, and, you know, the the scientists that I spoke with said that there will probably be several vaccines and mm-hmm. it's still unclear whether the results of those vaccines, um, you know, how, how long they will work in our mm-hmm. bodies. Mm-hmm. And so it might be like the flu shot where, we have to get boosters. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's it's still something that you know. I think everyone kind of wants this miracle cure, of course, because you know that's that's what we need. Um, people that would that would be great for the country's collective mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not going to be like that. And so you know, it's hard for these scientists because they have to manage people's expectations on top of trying to do their job as you know faster than they've ever done it before. Right, and and they don't want to mess up. <laughs> Right. <laughs> and, and of course, the other thing is that even if they did get, uh, even if we, we heard an announcement tomorrow that, you know, ah, we have a vaccine, then there's the whole how to distribute it, how to get it into the hands of the people and, and get it, you know, distributed around the world. How, how is that going to be manufactured fast enough, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, you know, that's also going to create um, a bit of a time warp for people too, because 
people who get the vaccine on the early side, well, they'll tend to be people who are immunocompromised or elderly or children, um, I believe will be mm-hmm. among the first. Mm-hmm. Um, but then people who are, who, who have normal healthy immune systems, who are maybe less, um, less susceptible to the virus, uh, they're going to be last on that list. And that's going to be a long wait. That's going to feel really long when you're towards the end of the list to get the vaccine and, you know, other people are getting it and you're seeing other people maybe return to the kind of life they had before while you continue to wait. Yeah. Maybe continue to wait in lockdown and (laughs) still can't go out Mm -hmm. or, or, yeah, there's so many questions uh, that will come out of that as we, as we get further into this and finally find our way out of it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Maura, anything else uh, you want to mention that we haven't touched on? Um, you know, I think one thing that that has also been interesting um, are kind of like the smaller moments where time feels slowed down. Um, I think one of the kind of most heart wrenching parts of the story for me was talking to a man who had to say um, say goodbye to his grandmother as mm-hmm. she was dying over FaceTime, yeah. and um, the hospital was overburdened, and so he only had a few minutes while this nurse was holding a phone for him to, you know, see his grandmother for the last time and tell him, tell her that he loved her. And like, that was all he got. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, in terms of time, it's like, he, he told me that that felt like five minutes and five months and five seconds at the same time. Like when mm-hmm. you have such an acutely stressful situation where, you know, you have to really wring every last bit of meaning out of it as possible. Um, like it's, it's going to create kind of this total collapse of how time feels for you because it's going to be very slow and very, um, quick at the same time. Um, and I think that's just heartbreaking. And I know that a lot of people, um, across the country and across the world have had that moment, um, and have maybe been dealing with, you know, how abrupt it felt, uh, and, and how little of a chance they had to really say the things they needed to say. And so, um, for people who are dealing with that and, and feeling that, that loss of time, um, you know, it's good and normal to mourn that, um, and, and that they are not alone in having that experience. Mm -hmm. The other thing in your article is you, someone mentioned about once we are out of this, how we'll remember these thoughts. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. It, you know, it depends again on what has happened to you during this time. Like if you are one of the lucky people to have made it through this completely unscathed, you haven't lost your job. Mm-hmm. Um, you haven't lost any family members. You've mm-hmm. mostly just been kind of hunkered down and like maybe you've missed some vacations, um, but otherwise have, have been fine. You know, when you look back on this in a couple of years, um, it's not going to feel like a long time actually, because you haven't made that many memories. Mm-hmm. You've been at home. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to feel like a blink. And, you know, when you, when you describe it to people later on, um, it's, it's, you know, there'll only be a few things that stand out. But then for people who have had something truly traumatic happen to them, people who have had the virus, who have lost a family member, who have lost a job, who have lost their homes, um, this is going to be a, a major touchstone in their life. It's, it's a completely consequential event, um, obviously. And it's, it's going to be something that the trauma of which will endure for their entire life. And so, you know, 
even when we are out of this, um, the way we look back on this time is going to be completely different for different people, even though it will have lasted the same amount of time in total for everyone. Mm. Fascinating. Maura, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. I want to thank you for taking the time to join us on the show and share this uh, this topic about our sense of time and how it's broken uh, during the COVID-19 pandemic. Thanks so much for having me. Our pleasure. That's Maura Jutkis, and she is a features reporter for The Washington Post. She covers culture, food, and the arts, and we're happy to have her on the show. And that is this part of the program, but please don't go away because we're going to be right back here on Moment of Truth with more right after this. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element, Element, Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That is 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. Anywhere across the country, if you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates as well as E-L-M-N-T-F-M and then listen on your device of choice, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And it is a pleasure to welcome to the show Kent Teske. He is the president of the Law Society of Alberta. He graduated with a Bachelor of Arts from the University of Alberta in 2001 and a Bachelor of Law degree from the University of Alberta in 2004. It's a pleasure to have him on the show. Uh, Kent, serving as the Law Society of Alberta president, you were first elected in 2014 and uh, you're responsible for leading the board re- regulating the legal profession in Alberta and its 10,000 lawyers. Congratulations and welcome to the show. Hi, David. Thanks for having me. You have recently also decided to uh, bring in some new uh, training uh, for the lawyers of Alberta, and that is for competency training uh, in regard to Indigenous competency. Uh, that, of course, coming out of the... Um, truth and reconciliation. What made you think that this was important to, for uh, lawyers to to get up to speed on? Sure. So the impetus uh, for this was, as you said, the TRC call to action, which uh, said to Canadian law societies uh, that they should ensure that lawyers had uh, a specific cultural competency with respect to Indigenous issues. Uh, and so we really thought through what that meant and, and why that was important here. Uh, and the Law Society exists to regulate, as we said, Alberta's 10,000 lawyers. Uh, and our position was that if you really are going to engage a culture of reconciliation, uh, you can't move forward unless you know where we've come from here. And even when I graduated from law school in 2004, um, the curriculum with respect to these sorts of issues was pretty limited uh, and not informed as it is right now. And we really believe that this was one of those core issues that not just some lawyers needed to know about, but all lawyers needed to know about uh, so that there was this baseline level of knowledge. So that was really what compelled our decision-making process. Mm. You know, when I think about this and I think about uh, lawyers defending people, um, you may know that part of the history of Indigenous people was that they could not have a lawyer at one point in time. Mm-hmm. But that if you are going to defend someone, you should know them, I guess, and their history and or at least how they were treated. Is this is this surprising then that, that this kind of uh, recommendation from the Truth and Reconciliation uh, is recommended? 
So I, I don't think it's surprising. Um, uh, here's, I guess, what I would say. Um, there are certain practice areas where I think it was apparent um, from a functional or practical perspective that this sort of understanding was important. So my practice area of criminal defense work uh, is in an area where uh, there has been an overrepresentation of Indigenous people for a very long time that's been a source of, of, of concern here. So for me personally, understanding these issues was important because um, if you don't understand a person's background, you can't defend them, you can't advocate for them. Uh, and the other side of it is that, that you had to be able to listen and to understand really what uh, was the basis of intergenerational trauma, uh, the true effect uh, of, of a variety of these issues of cultural genocide and cultural misappropriation here to really understand the issue. Uh, what I think is really more important here is we've really said Listen, beyond these obvious practice areas that may directly engage with the Indigenous community, we think all lawyers need to understand these issues here. Mm -hmm. We think that all lawyers, as people who are responsible for administering justice and providing services to clients, need to understand these issues. And so I think that's really the key point here, that we really said uh, this wasn't a practice-specific area. This was a profession-specific thing that everybody needed to know about here. But uh, I agree that, it, you know, at least for my practice area, it's been fundamental for a while. When you think of the implementation of uh, cultural competency in, in terms of indigenous people and uh, as, a, as a lawyer and, and having someone d defend an indigenous person, that learning this competency is going to help or affect cases. Uh, so here's what I would say. Um, good, good information makes for better decision-making. And so as an advocate, when I go to court, I'm responsible for uh, trying to provide uh, information about my client so that a judge can make a good decision, a fair decision in the context of things here. And uh, one of the things that we've known is that judges have lacked good information about Indigenous people in terms of the sentencing process because we need to understand where people come from in order to impose a fit and proper sentence. Where lawyers come into the mix is if I'm interviewing a client and trying to get a, a sense of their background, um, my experience has been that a lot of people from the Indigenous community um, are not aware of the importance of some of these issues. They, they take some of these issues for granted. And so you have to be, I think, particularly adept at asking the right questions, but really listening and understanding the issues. So in order for me to um, ask better questions to get better information, I think I need to understand the history of, of what's occurred here so that I can relay that information to the judge. I mean, really the history of a lot of cases from the Supreme Court, like Gladue and Ippoli, have really been about saying to the justice, if you're going to make better decisions about Indigenous people that come before the court, you need to understand the significant tragic history of the Indigenous community in Canada. Lawyers play a significant role in that because we go into court and advocate for people. And in order to do that, we need to make sure that we have the best information and know how to ask the right questions of our clients and, and listen to get the right answers. You mentioned judges and uh, bringing that information to judges and, and to the, the case for you, who you're representing. Mm -hmm. Is there, and I don't know if you can answer this, it's just something that popped into my head. Uh, what is the role of the judge in, the, in regard to also being up to speed on this? Or is that what would you would say is, is now what you're trying to do with uh, having this Indigenous competency brought in for lawyers to be able to be aware uh, to represent their clients more more thoroughly? Well, I think um, 
to what extent judges do this sort of competency work on their own. I think the Supreme Court has said to uh, trial judges uh, and appellate judges for years now, you need to understand these issues, that they it's not optional. It is not a nice to have here. In order to, to provide a just result, you need to know uh, where people have come from. So quite candidly, I think the Truth and Reconciliation uh, call to action uh, was really um, – trailed by a number of things that have happened over the last 15 years uh, to, to understand these issues. I mean, the impetus for much of this, at least in the court system, has been uh, a tragic overrepresentation of Indigenous people uh, in the court system. Uh, and beyond that, from what we've known about missing and murdered Indigenous women, mm-hmm. uh, the victimization of women within the system. It is fundamental for people who work in the justice system to understand these sorts of histories here, uh, to uh, know how that informs the work. And it's not just the criminal process. It's the child welfare process where Indigenous people are vastly overrepresented. Uh, But it also relates to issues about rights within uh, treaty obligations uh, and a variety of things like that here. The fact of the matter is the connection of the Indigenous community the Indigenous people and the justice system is one that is uh, has not been, uh, in my view, um, correct. Uh, there is a lot of misunderstanding there, and we believe that this is one step to show our commitment to getting it right. You also said issues. You said that um, a lot of Indigenous people don't understand or take the, take issues for granted. What what do you did you mean by that? What, well, so I'll, I'll give a perfect example of that. Um, so if, if, if you come from a history where for many of your relatives uh, were in a residential school, uh, you would just kind of assume that that just goes without saying. And, and before I was trained in these issues, I might not ask those sorts of questions. You know, did you have a relative who was in a residential school? What did that mean in terms of uh, your connection with culture? What did that mean with respect to uh, how you were raised? The taking for granted is um, if this is an aspect of your community in your life, you may well assume and, and probably should assume that your lawyer should have some understanding of that. Uh, and so what cultural competency does is to make sure that we understand some of these fundamental issues so that we don't take them for granted and that I ask the right questions to understand what effect that would occur. I, I go back to my previous point. When I was in law school, uh, the phrase residential school was not a fundamental term that came up in the curriculum that I did. And that was about 15 years ago. Mm. As you were talking there, I couldn't help but think about how this might also affect the relationship between a lawyer and and his Indigenous client um, for understanding, but also understanding what questions, as you started to allude to there, what questions to ask uh, to get a further understanding and a greater understanding of, of what has uh, brought them to that point so that they are, you know, in the court. And I think that's right. I mean, you commented previously about uh, the inability of Indigenous people to get representation through lawyers previously, but there's more subtle forms of that. I mean, if you think about how justice is administered in a lot of Indigenous communities, uh, and I used to practice a lot more in the Northwest Territories where the Mm. court would fly into a community. So you would have likely a Caucasian judge and a Caucasian lawyer and a Caucasian Crown prosecutor and Caucasian um, uh, RCMP officers who would come into a community, uh, uh, run trials, likely resulting in people being incarcerated, and then they would fly out. I think there has to be 
historically, um, some mistrust of the administration of justice by the indigenous community. And probably much of it is, is justified. Going back even to the concept of the Indian agent uh, that would run uh, a reserve or run in one of these communities before, uh, you know, issues of sovereignty came into play. And so I guess the act of reconciliation is you have to understand that history. You have to understand why that's a problem so that you can move forward in a more positive light here. So I don't think you can be committed to reconciliation as a profession, which is who I regulate, unless you're committed to understanding the history that brings us to this point. So do you see this as, as also part of your overall goal as the uh, as president uh, of the law, law society that uh, of moving into the 21st century? Yeah, I, I mean, I guess here's what I would say. Um, well, our initiative here is to provide cultural competency um, about the Indigenous issues. My hope is that it will cause lawyers to think about the fact of do they really understand their clients or the background of the people they advocate for mm-hmm. that may be different for them. So while the skill set is unique to this history, I'm hopeful that it will cause some introspection uh, between uh, for lawyers to think about uh, places that they may have gaps, whether or not they're dealing with other racialized communities, uh, different types of minorities, different types of backgrounds that are different from them. Uh, so my hope is is, is that, uh, number one, lawyers will find this to be an interesting program. Uh, that's been our, our feedback so far. Mm. Uh, but one, more importantly, that will cause some reflection. Uh, and I think that is uh, is an important place to be. Well, I'm glad you answered that, that uh, you are finding that, that lawyers are interested, because that was going to be my next question is how do you think this would be uh, is going to be um, uh, accepted or or looked at going back to uh, again how the law society contributes to society in, in some of your overall uh, goals as as the president you mentioned in your your little video clip there that this is a a, a profession and a professional act that is over 100 years old uh, i mm-hmm. thought that was pretty interesting yeah i mean the law society um, you know, we have a profession of 10,000 lawyers. When the, the Legal Profession Act was created in Alberta, it was probably one one hundredth of that. Um, and the reality is um, people's expectations about legal services and what lawyers need to do and the requirements on lawyers is changing at a very rapid pace here. And so our obligation is, is to uh, keep up. But in fact, more importantly than, than to lead on some of these issues here. And, and I think this is a place, uh, where Alberta, uh, and BC, and those are the two jurisdictions right now who have really led on this issue, mm. uh, are, are, uh, kind of saying, uh, this matters. Because I guess here's what I would say. Um, I think we're beyond the point, uh, where society's expectations of lawyers can be, you know, we just want you to understand the black letter law. Uh, and you know, you know, that's what's important here. What is the, what does the legislation say? What does the case say? Uh, I think if we view lawyers as advocates who are responsible for hopefully advancing justice, they need to know more than that. And, and that's where cultural competency becomes important here. Just uh, just going to finish up, and I'm just wondering about, it ties in, I guess, what you were saying about accountability and transparency as you move forward um, mm-hmm. as well. Have you, have you seen this uh, provide any real, ter- real, uh, real effects on people at this point in time? In generalities, have you seen this I- implemented? Uh, and and affect uh, things in in a more positive way when when dealing with indigenous people within the court system. So what I can tell you is an initial reaction. Um, we have a, an indigenous advisory committee that I chair, uh, which is representatives of the indigenous community who are lawyers uh, in the province. And I think the feedback that we received was. Um, 
you know, the indigenous community has had a lot of uh, talk being given about the issue of reconciliation, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of promises, a lot of platitudes. Um, while this is not the solution to a problem, it's not the full solution to the problem, it's a meaningful step. Uh, and I guess here's what I would say, David. Uh, this is not the end step in the process of reconciliation. Mm-hmm. It's an important foundation. Uh, but we're committed to this uh, as being a long-term process because to the extent to which the crisis or the tragedy that we've engaged in is one that occurred over generations. Uh, so too will the solutions be ones over the long term. Mm. Uh, but we think we've got a good foundation here by saying that that all lawyers in Alberta are going to have some baseline understanding of these issues that they can build upon. Great. We'll leave it there. I want to thank you for taking the time to join us on the show and uh, and share these thoughts with us. Thanks very much, David. You're very welcome. That's the voice of Kent Teske. He is the president of the Law Society of Alberta, and he was first elected in 2014 and is responsible for leading the board uh, regarding the legal profession in Alberta and its 10,000 lawyers. More coming up. I'm your host, David Moses. Talk to you then. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That is 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates, as well as ELMNTFM, and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It is a pleasure to welcome to the show Deidre McKay. She is a uh, reader of geography and environment. I like to get that explained to me once we once we get past the introductions. She's also a senior internationalism. Uh, internalize, let me start that again. A senior internationalization director, school of geography and geology and the environment engagement champion, and faculty of natural sciences at Keele University in the UK. So it's a pleasure to welcome uh, Deidre to the show. Hi, how are you? I'm okay, thank you. And we're talking today about plastics. You wrote a, an article in the conversation about cheap plastic and how third world countries, developing countries are turning to cheap plastic. Now that oil companies are seeing the, the writing on the wall that maybe they're not going to be uh, fueling vehicles, uh, they're turning to plastic now uh, as a way, as an alternative for their businesses. Absolutely. That is what's happening in the global economy. Oil companies are looking for a new market for their petroleum products, and they're finding it in plastics, largely packaging, that they are selling into developing areas of the world. So remote and rural communities have this tide of plastic that's heading toward them, and most of them don't have the solid waste management facilities to cope with it. That is a, a, a very big issue, especially now that we are aware of the huge issue that plastics uh, create on the planet, in our water systems. Uh, they break down, but they don't really break down. They just become smaller and smaller and smaller, then get consumed by uh, fish. What we're looking at is plastics that break up into tiny, tiny pieces, but they don't actually decompose into carbon dioxide and water. So they don't break down the same way that wood or paper or bark or clay might. Exactly. And of course, they don't break down for a long time. So they remain in the system. They also become a huge problem for entanglement of fish. We've seen pictures where there's the, uh, the the plastic rings that are on 
uh, uh, cans. They get stuck around the, the uh, uh, fish as well as birds. Yeah, they pose huge problems for wildlife. Not just the big macroplastics that、mm. they get entangled in, but even the microplastics or nanoparticle-sized plastics that they're ingesting. And there's so much about it that we don't know. But we know, for instance, that plastic bags, when they get into waterways, they look like food to turtles and to whales. And we know that those kinds of bits of plastic packaging we discard can actually block the digestive tracts of animals and、uh, other wildlife when they get down to the, that micro micro scale. So there's a lot of plastic that we can see and stop, but there's even more that we can't see. But it's surprising to me when I hear that that oil companies are looking to create more of this stuff in this world that we now know and what plastics can do. There, from your article, read they're actually lobbying to try to get some of these. Reversals on plastics、uh, put through so that they can start producing and and selling this stuff again. Well, oil companies have been lobbying to overturn plastic bans in Kenya, and most recently, oil companies have been pressuring the U.S. government to try and block the ban on plastic materials that's going to come in in Canada. So everybody's in the firing line for this. And the reason is that they have sunk lots of money, big, big, big investments in the infrastructure that they need to make the feedstock for plastic. So they're committed already to producing the, the basic petroleum materials that you can refine into plastics, and they're trying to find new markets for it. Because they can't walk away from those investments, they still have oil coming out of the ground. They've still committed to refining those materials over the decades, and they have to replace the、uh, demand for transport fuel and heating fuel with something. And so they're looking at plastic packaging, and we've certainly seen the just the diversity. And the kinds of materials that we now get packed in plastics—that's increased a great deal over the last thirty or forty years. And this is now being extended out to even more remote places around the world because it's really carrying development to people: the medicine they need, the water they need, the foodstuffs they might want to buy in store. It's all coming now in disposable plastic packaging. That I was just going to say is there a plus side to plastics? I guess that is a, a plus. It is bringing things to people that need them for sure. But there's got to be a way for us to to find and utilize or perhaps recycle this. If it's only single use, it can't keep going on because we know what the damage will be. You're absolutely right. We have to turn off the tap for single use plastics. Now, I don't think we're ever going to be able to get rid of plastics entirely. They're too convenient. They're hygienic, like you said. They're disposable, but we don't need to use them for everything that we use them for. We have alternative kinds of materials. Some of them are biomaterial-based plastics. Some of them are other materials entirely. They can take the place of petroleum-based plastics, and then we can try recycling some of the ones that. 
aren't that difficult to work with, but a lot of the plastics that we throw away really are not recyclable, at least economically speaking. So theoretically, we might be able to make them into something else, but you have to put in so much energy and deal with so many toxic chemicals that it's not actually worthwhile. I'm really flabbergasted at when we see the images of plastics floating in our water systems and we see them and we hear about what you pointed out, that that these plastic bags look like food to animals. They consume them. They get stuck in their digestive tract. Of course, that is going to eventually harm the animal, if not kill the animal. So none of this sounds like it's great for the ecological system. It's a huge amount of time it takes for plastic to break down. Isn't it a couple hundred years or more? Well, that's only to break into small pieces. If you're looking for the small pieces, we don't actually know how many hundreds of years they're going to persist Mm. and whether they are actually going to then break up into their constituent chemicals or if they're going to still be in the environment as polymers, as the more complex molecules. Mm. So we're talking a whole bunch of kind of open-ended questions here. But for some plastics, definitely 800, 1,000 years later, you can still tell what they initially were when you see them. So I think we've got this giant experiment going on, and we're not really sure how it ends. But we do know that we can come up with alternatives. Unfortunately, we're often dealing with manufacturers and businesses that want to blame the consumer or the householder for accepting and then disposing of the material. So you often get into discussions about how it's not the fault of the material, it's the fault of the people who litter. And those aren't very productive. Mm. No, certainly not. And why would the why would the responsibility be entirely put on the on the consumer when the manufacturer is developing these things to one, make a profit and make it easy for people to buy their products? I'm assuming that's part of the reason they're doing it. Absolutely, because plastic is so cheap. It doesn't incur a big cost for the manufacturer. They can make their prices lower and then they can sell more of their product. That works really well if we accept that governments have to provide waste management services and people have to use them. But we're looking at about 80% of the planet that doesn't have proper waste management being offered to them by their government. So it's not actually very responsible to be selling people stuff that they can't safely dispose of. Well, speaking of that responsibility, not being responsible and business not wanting to take responsibility for the the manufacturing of their product that is then a problem uh, after its single use. Uh, we do see uh, here just recently we, we heard about some new changes that are going to be taking place in recycling. And part of that responsibility of recycling, the cost of recycling is going to go back to the businesses and perhaps the manufacturers that are using these products. Why uh, are we not then lobbying uh, oil companies and the manufacturer of these single product uh, plastics to say, well, then you're going to start footing the bill for some of the cost of, of recycling these items and getting them so that they can be reutilized or, or at least not littered in the way that they are being done today. I think that kind of solution, regulation, is absolutely the way we have to go. We have to pressure our elected officials to enact that kind of legislation to support regulatory frameworks that will tax corporations that are producing plastic waste 
require them to use more recycled material in the plastics they do produce and require them to pay for the end-of-life disposal of their plastic products. This is really difficult because they're used to making this somebody else's problem and they resist it. And we have to, as consumers and householders and voters, actually take that on board and say, this isn't a problem we can deal with responsibly as individuals. It has to have a societal level solution. Mm-hmm. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates as well as E-L-M-N-T-F-M and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. My guest here on Moment of Truth is Deirdre McKay. as She is a senior lecturer in geography at Keele University in the the UK. And we're talking about plastics, cheap plastics, uh, an article that uh, DRG wrote, wrote in the conversation uh, about plastics and how oil companies are trying to, because of the investment they have in oil, it, it, they are still trying to uh, find a way to use that investment that they have because uh, cars are starting to go more electric. They're starting to move away from uh, those oil-based uh, systems that uh, run vehicles. And so they're turning to plastics now to try and uh, continue uh, their their business. And, of course, that it would be correct for any business to do so. But when we now know the danger of plastic, and not only just from a litter perspective, but also and how it doesn't break down, but it also can be ingested by animals. It gets into the, to the waterways, all those things that we now know about. Uh, Deirdre, what, what are some of the solutions, though, that we can come up with in terms of, of even utilizing the plastics that we now have? I, from your article, I believe there, there, are, uh, there are alternatives or at least ways of, of combining plastics in with new biodegradable products or, or at least... Products that hold the plastic so they, they don't break down. Yeah. I was working with a team of colleagues in Indonesia, and we're looking at locally designed safe sinks for plastics. Mm. So what we did was we took plastic bags, low-density polyethylene, and we mixed it with durian wood dust, sawdust from a local wood mill. Mm. So... We mix that together and we pressed out a wood plastic composite. And that's like, looks like a kind of moldable plastic board, the kind of thing you'd find in decking, for mm. instance. Mm-hmm. And we found that if we tried to feed that to termites that live in that durian wood forest, they could ingest the plastic and they may be breaking it down. So this is the example of the kind of local solution that people can come up with to deal with the the plastic that they will need in developing their local economies. So I'm not suggesting that we can have wood plastic composites made out of durian wood eaten by these amazing termites right around the world, but they work really well for the rainforest area in northern Sumatra, where my partners are uh, doing their research. So there are all sorts of organisms that have enzymes that can degrade the the bonds between ethylene molecules. 
So the constituent element of many of these plastics can be broken down. There are bacteria um, that have these enzymes and you can find them in the guts of some uh, insects in particular, wax moths, termites. We're not entirely sure exactly where they're going to be. But this means that we can lock up some of the plastics in these combined materials and then they can be safely degraded by elements of a local environment. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about these safe sinks? What, what, does, what do they do? How, what, what do they look like? What are, yeah, how do they work? Well, a safe sink would be something like this wood plastic composite that would keep the plastic locked up okay. for a you know, particularly long period of time relative to having it sort of scattered across the surface of the soil. Mm. And then it could be broken down by the local biota, by local termites and bacteria. So it could be digested basically on site. So this is a vision of something that be quite small scale and quite local, mm. but very much a possibility for remote communities that don't yet have waste collection. They could be making their own wood plastic composite using it for construction, and then they could make sure that they have the, the termite digestion system that will degrade it again on site. <laughs> so our sinks idea is really a small-scale and local suggestion for how communities can deal with the problem of not being able to refuse plastic entirely. And I'd like to come back to this termite idea in a moment, but... Uh, creating these these wood plastic composites is that labor intensive is it fairly easy to do i'm just wondering about how that might be rolled out you know on a worldwide basis actually in terms of materials engineering and i was working with foresters and engineers on this it's pretty straightforward mm. you your wood powder from the sawmill and you've got ground up polyethylene which can be from post consumer waste plastic bags and you mix them together and you press them at temperature. It's pretty straightforward. It's not a hugely complicated industrial process. You could definitely scale it up, but you wouldn't want to be producing too much of this at, at too big a scale because there are, you know, some considerations around flammability mm. and durability that you, you, you can't suddenly sort of pave the world with this stuff and mm. say there's all the plastic locked up. Right. But it's one of those partial and local solutions that can be part of the bigger picture because people, for hygiene reasons, we're never going to get rid of some of the, the plastic packaging and particularly plastic bags that we make out of polyethylene. So these safe sinks are going to have to take on a different set of shapes around the world. They're not always going to be the same materials doing the same thing. Mm. The termites, um, you know, being able to ingest and possibly, you know, uh, filter these these uh, biodegradable and plastics back into the environment and break them down sounds very encouraging. It, it of course, also makes sense that perhaps we have not yet at this point found a way to to be able to to break these plastics down in a quicker fashion. But plastics, oil, all of these things have come from the earth. So it makes sense that they should be able to go back to the earth somehow. Uh, would you agree with that? And would you say that we're now looking at different ways to possibly 
uh, either turning to, like you're talking about the enzymes, the termites or uh, bacteria that can ingest and break this stuff down to, to make it uh, go back into the, the earth and, and uh, become not as much of a problem as it is. Absolutely, David. Um, yes, we definitely want to make sure that um, we are working with naturally occurring enzymes, bacteria, organisms that host them, so that they're already appropriate to the e- ecosystems that we're, we're dealing with. So yes, plastics have come from natural materials, but they've been super refined, mm-hmm. but we can look to natural solutions to unrefine them, as it were. Mm. We don't need to take, you know, sort of massive bioengineering risks and building something new before we've assessed what's out there. So Japanese researchers and Filipino researchers have been looking at bacteria, um, and another group has been studying wax moth larvae. And it looks like all these different biological systems actually have the potential, like our termites do, to degrade some polyethylene. So we can focus in on finding a solution there. That sounds at least encouraging. It it makes you think that the earth is going to sort out a way to deal with a plastic pollution problem with or without us. We just have to facilitate it. I think you just hit the nail on the head there when you said with or without us. We <laughs> seem to be uh, at loggerheads in many ways with the planet at the moment. And uh, we shouldn't uh, we should not forget that the planet and Mother Earth is much bigger than us and has been here a lot longer than us. And I'm sure that if uh, she so chooses, she will uh, take care of herself. <laughs> well, I think you're right there. It's all a matter of really scale. You know, a little bit of, a pl- of plastic that we deal with responsibly isn't that much of a problem. But everybody on the planet's surface discarding single use plastics that is going to come back to hurt us and the systems that we depend on. So moderating what we're doing, being judicious in what we dispose of into the natural environment, changing our materials, all of that can take us through a transition in materials so that we're going to be leading a more sustainable life. Now, that doesn't mean giving up plastics altogether for everything, but it does mean reducing our consumption of them and being much more careful about how we discard of them. Mm-hmm. Deidre, it's been a, a real pleasure having you on the show and speaking with you about this. Uh, thank you for bringing this to our attention. I wish you all the best with your further work in this area. Thanks, David. <laughs> we didn't get to the part where I got to say I was from unceded Mi'kmaq land. <laughs> well, you just did. Yeah, I grew up like shouting distance from Pictou Landing First Nation. That's Deirdre McKay. She is a senior lecturer in geography at the Keele University in the United Kingdom. She also holds a PhD in geography from the University of British Columbia and has worked on development and migration. And she has also worked with Canada's international development agencies, the CIDA and the International Development Research Centre as both field researcher and interim and collaborated with the Australian Agency for International Development. And uh, she now is in the UK and is collaborating with the Stoke on Trent and Charity with B-Arts to develop hands-on activities to help the public address the problems of waste plastics. It's been a pleasure having her on the show. And it's always a pleasure to have you listening to the show each and every day. I'm your host, David Moses. That is Moment of Truth for today. We look forward to having you back again tomorrow. 
This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.